Okay, topic for this evening is the early Ptolemaic period in Eretz Yisrael with a focus on the translation of the Torah into Greek. So when the Macedonians took over Eretz Yisrael, they changed the name of the region from Yehud, which was the name under the Persians, to Judea. Judea. Uh, the satrapy no longer uh, was referred to as Ever Hanahar, across the river, but instead it was simply Syria. The region of Judea roughly corresponded to what had been the southern kingdom before the conquest by Nebuchadnezzar a few hundred years earlier. Uh, the southern portion of Eretz Israel became Idumia and was not a particularly Jewish area, although that name was already anachronistic because the, king, the kingdom of Edom was long defunct and had been replaced by Arabs and then Nabataeans. Um, according to our tradition, Alexander did not raise the yearly tribute which was previously paid to the Persians. So, from an economic point of view, there was no uh, decline in the status of the Jews. Things continued as they were, or maybe even improved slightly, which is something we mentioned last week, that there was no sharp divide between the Persian and uh, and, uh, Greek periods. It's kind of just one long slog through the Second Temple period with your overlord living somewhere else. Whether it's here or there, who cares? On the ground, things don't change much. Um, All Jews, even the poorest of the poor, were legally free men. We're going to see, next week we'll discuss uh, certain social institutions, how Hebrew slavery didn't really exist. Evid Ivri is a a concept in the Torah, but was not put into practice by this point in time. So, everybody's a a free person. There are no gradations. Um, (coughs) Mosaic law is the law of the land, but in the early Second Temple times, it wasn't very strong. Between the days of Cyrus and Ezra, we know that people were not particularly pious. That's why the book of Ezra and Nehemiah talks about all sorts of maneuvers done by these two Jewish leaders to get people to be more religious. But in the century between Nehemiah and Alexander, the law was much more widely observed. Uh, so that you don't need to have um, significant legislation in order to prop up the Torah, it's already been uh, grabbed onto by the populace. By the time of the Hasmonean Rebellion, the Torah was firmly entrenched, and the Torah law applied only to Jews. It didn't apply to heathens. They were free to be polytheists even in the land of Israel, but the reality was that in the early Ptolemaic period, early Greek period, the Jews were very intolerant very intolerant of others, and thus polytheism was effectively removed, idolatry was destroyed in Eretz Israel. You couldn't get away with it even if you were a goy. Uh, how did they do that? I mean, how, they how do Muslims do it today in, in certain parts of the world? Muslims are not crazy Jews. Uh, well, uh, <laughs> so the, the Jews of, of the early Greek period were very intolerant of, of, heathen, uh, of heathen behavior, of paganism, and they didn't allow idolatry. We're talking about the late 4th and early 3rd centuries BCE. We're talking about shortly after the uh, Alexander's conquest, when there are you know, Macedonian colonists coming into the land of Israel, but in Judea proper, there was no tolerance for other forms of worship. Now, that's not to say that in other parts of Eretz Israel there was no heathenism. Of course there was. In the coastal cities, which were not predominantly Jewish, and in the far south and the, and the far north... We'll see there were Jews there, but it wasn't a Judean province. And so idolatry could flourish. Other faiths could, could uh, be freely practiced. 
Okay. Now, the Jewish diaspora is something we have to mention now. During the early Second Temple period, the diaspora begins basically at the gates of Jerusalem. What is the Jewish state? The city of Jerusalem and maybe its immediate surroundings. But you go a few kilometers away, you're already in like no man's land. You're far, you're far from the core, from the center. That's already the diaspora. Yehud was a tiny province, but there were Jews, whether returnees or those who never left, uh, who lived in other parts of Eretz Israel. So the records tell us that there are Jews who lived in the south, um, from Beersheba all the way to the Hinnom Valley. Now the Hinnom Valley, the Geben Hinnom, Gehenim, uh, most of us have been there. I don't mean hell, but I mean Gehenim, the actual Geben Hinnom, the valley in between the Mount Zion Hotel and the, the, the slopes of, uh, of the old city. So that is just beyond the, the, the city's borders, and yet that's regarded as sort of diaspora. Um, Not necessarily true, but that's in the north. We uh, we can't say that they were always there. Okay, now pe- uh, people in the southern districts of Samaria sacrificed at Jerusalem. This is an important point. The Samarian district is a fairly large district, the Shomron. The religious cultic center for the so-called Samaritans moved from the, the, the city of Samaria to Mount Grizim near Shechem. But that doesn't mean the entire Samarian province was devoted to that place of worship. If you lived in southern Samaria, let's say where Beit El is today, everything just north of Ramallah, those people were so-called Jews, not Samaritans, and worshipped at Jerusalem, despite the fact that from a uh, geopolitical point of view, they were not in the territory of Yehud or Judea. Okay? Parts of what had been historically Yisachar and Zevulun and Naphtali in the Galilee were never exiled, and Jews still lived there. Uh, which goes back to your point that there are Jews from all 12 tribes. So, other Jews migrated to the Hellenistic coastal cities because the money was good there. The, the economy was much better in the uh, bustling coastal towns of Ashkelon, Ashdod, Yafo, uh, Akko, rather than in the, the Judean heartland where things were pretty primitive. Also, in the land of God and Manasseh, on the other side of the Jordan River, there were Jews who lived in Eretz Tov. And we'll see the Tobiad family plays an important role in Second Temple history. They were uh, in the land what had been known as Ammon, the Ammonite territory, but they were Jewish. And the, the Tobiad family were politically dominant in this Transjordanian region, but they were Jews. So Jews live all over the place. Also, Jews lived in Beit Sha'an which is in the northern Jordan Valley, and was sort of a crossing over point between the uh, Ever HaYardin and the the traditional portions of Eretz Israel. Um, Were there really elements of all 12 tribes in the land of Israel in the Greek period? So, we can't know for sure, but the theory uh, that um, they operated under was that, yes, there are elements of all 12 tribes. And so in the legends of the 12, uh, uh, the Testament of the 12 Patriarchs, which is an apocryphal book about the Aserat HaShifatim, uh, the, the 12 Shifatim, um, it assumes that there are, there are descendants in the country. Also, the Targum Shivim, the Septuagint, uh, the Greek translation of Torah, which we'll talk about at length, in the original story, it says that there were 72 scholars. Why were there 72 scholars? Six from each of the 12 tribes. Okay, uh, how could there be six from every, all 12 tribes if all 12 tribes don't exist anymore? The answer is they believe that they did, that there were elements of all 12. 
uh, also in the book of Judith, in the, uh, another apocryphal book, we have uh, this notion that all 12 tribes are represented in uh, Jewish society. Um, now, the Hasmonians, in the next period of time, did not need to impose the Torah in annexed regions of Eretz Yisrael, except for two areas, Idumia in the south and Ituria in the north. Uh, forget the northern portion for a second. Idumia is the more famous one uh, because a uh, 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 son of Idumia <laughs> became the king of the Jews. And who's that? Herod. Herod. Okay. So Idumia was forcibly converted to Judaism. Whether that was a good thing or a bad thing, we'll get to about five weeks from now when we discuss the uh, Hasmonean uh, um, conquest. But I bring it up now only to tell you that there were Jews all over Eretz Yisrael, even if they didn't live in the province that was designated as a Jewish province, the small core of Yehud or Judea. And so when the Jewish state, or Jewish commonwealth, expands its borders, it finds a receptive audience in those other parts of Eretz Yisrael, because there are Jews there. And they don't have to struggle to impose Torah as the law of the land, because Jews will willingly accept Torah as the law of the land. Where will the Torah not be accepted willingly? where the, the, the predominant uh, uh, element is not Jewish, notably Samaria. But they're, they're, you know, they're of Judaic uh, you know, type religion, just an alternative Torah, an alternative house of worship, which will be destroyed. But uh, Idumia, which is a totally another religion, has to be forcibly converted. Okay. Now, there, are, there is a way of proving that the Torah and Judaism flourished beyond the borders of the Judean province. And we know this from Pirkei Avot. What does it say in Pirkei Avot about areas beyond the Judean province? If you get this right, you should be teaching the class, because this is the hardest question I've ever asked. This is Final Jeopardy. Where do we know in the first parak of Pirkei Avot that Judaism flourished beyond the borders of Yehud or Judea? Three examples. It's a good question. Okay, so the answers are Antignos Ish Soho, Yossi Ben Yoezer Ish Tsreda, and Nitaiha Arbeli. Soho, Tsreda, and Arbel are all beyond the borders of Yehud. Uh, whether Soho to the west of the province, um, Tsreda to the north, and Arbel in the Galilee. Um, these are not within the boundaries that were governed by the Jerusia, by the Jewish Senate, or by, for that matter, under the, the jurisdiction of the high priest. So, Excuse me, Jerusalem, the border of Jerusalem, <coughs> does that approximate the, Tur- uh, the Turkish borders now? Or the Turkish uh, uh, walls? Uh, no, no. It, uh, the broad wall. It's uh, basically the Jewish quarter, part of the Armenian quarter, uh, the Ir David section it goes south. It's pretty narrow. It's a north-south narrow uh, uh, column, as opposed to what we have today, which is like a trapezoid. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Muslim quarter and the Christian quarter would not have been in the old city, in the, in the city of, of those years. Mary was not in the <coughs> jurisdiction of... No, absolutely not. Not until the Hasmonean conquests. Okay, so <coughs> those on the periphery were more exposed to foreign influence than those in Jerusalem and the Jerusalem environs. Uh, so the, the, the core of Torah study and of religious observance was in the immediate proximity of the temple. But it doesn't mean you couldn't have a great scholar who lived at some distance, as we see there were several of them. There was an altar at Lachish, which is just beyond the borders of Judea, 
which means that the Deuteronomic rule of centralized worship, of only one house of God, of one sacrificial place, was adhered to when you, you, know, when you were under the coercion of the high priests, of the, of the temple aristocracy. But if you were beyond their borders, you could do whatever you wanted. Now, is it against the Torah? Sure, it's against the Torah. But then again, we have several other examples of temples that existed in Elephantine and later in, in Leontopolis in Egypt. So, if you were not under the, the, the uh, legal jurisdiction of the temple authorities, you could do what you wanted, even in, in the, under the guise of Judaism. Okay? Uh, high priestly control... In the, in the temporal sense of the word, uh, secular law, the high priest as a secular leader, is only because the governing authorities, whether they be Persian or later Greek, give the rights to the high priest and his underlings to control this and this territory. But if you're beyond that territory, you're free to do what you want. Okay. Now, Ptolemy defeated Antigonus in 301 at the Battle of Ipsus and retook Palestine for, for good. This is Tommy One, Tommy Soter. Uh, he rules from 323 to uh, about 281. Right after, right after Alexander's death, yes. And after several back and forth battles for Eretz Yisrael, he controls it starting in 301. And, and his descendants will control it basically uninterrupted for the next 100 years, 101 years. In the, ba- in the year 200, the Battle of Panion, uh, Antiochus III recovers Eretz Yisrael for Syria. Uh, the two kingdoms went to war five times. There were five uh, Seleucid Ptolemaic Wars. The first one was 280-279. Second one was 276-272. The third one, 242-241, which was a very important war. We'll see soon. The fourth one was 219-217. And the last one was in 203. For the most part, although this seems like a lot of war, a century of warfare is never good for a country. It would, it, if I stopped here, you'd say, well, must be Eretz Yisrael was ravaged by conflict and uh, it destroyed the crops and the people suffered and the population dwindled. That's usually what happens when there's a lot of war. Didn't happen. Why? Because other than in the year 218, the wars did not affect the region of Eretz Yisrael where the Jews lived and, and where the temple was located. It was primarily in the northern stretches, closer to the Syrian border, or along the coast at Rafa, in Gaza. But inland, for the, so Ju- Judea, uh, even Samaria, and most, most of the Galilee went untouched by conflict in four out of those five wars. Okay. But wouldn't the, wouldn't the citizens of Yerushalayim have been drafted? No. Because... Uh, for religious reasons, they... Uh, their, their services were not wanted. Okay, um, that's not to say that they didn't have to supply tax money to to Ptolemy uh, to fund his wars, which they certainly did, and he exploited the the, the countryside terribly. But they, they were not they were not drafted in any significant numbers. So, <coughs> um, the Jews of Eretz Israel lived in safety and prosperity. The wars were mostly at the northern border in the Ptolemaic Syria. Um, the administration was entirely uh, composed of Greeks. And there was massive corruption. Uh, Greek rule did bring certain positive things. It brought uh, advances in technology, in agricultural technology, in handicrafts, and, this, and science. Uh, but those benefits were probably outweighed by an oppressive bureaucracy and exploitation. There was also a clash over cultural ideas, which didn't boil over in the 3rd century, but would eventually, uh, under Antiochus' rule in the Hanukkah story, matters of nudity uh, and pagan worship, 
All that stuff existed in 3rd century uh, Ptolemaic Eretz Yisrael, but the clash was kept to a minimum because the more objectionable parts of Greek culture were kept out of the more sacred parts of Eretz Yisrael. Essentially, don't bother us, we won't bother you. On cultural matters, everything is fine. It's when they're imposed upon the holy places, usually by renegade Jews, that will have a problem. And that doesn't happen until the, the Hasmonean period. Okay. Many Jews moved to Egypt from Eretz Israel, whether forcibly or not, during the reign of Alexander and his successors. The question then came up about the rights of citizenship for the Jews of Alexandria. Shall they be citizens or not? And this was a very new question, which was not raised earlier by the previous diasporas, because naturaliz- naturalization, or the changing of one's identity by fiat, um, was a Greek invention, and unknown in the Orient, which didn't encourage assimilation. Basically, when the Jews moved to Babylonia, or for that matter, when anybody moved to Babylonia, because uh, their territory was conquered by Nebuchadnezzar, or whoever it might have been, or by the Assyrians, and they were exiled to points east. They, re- they retained their cultural identity because no one was asking them to become Babylonian or Assyrian. You were who you were. There was no getting around that. You, your, your culture might die because it has no homeland anymore, and that happened to many cultures. It didn't happen to Judaism. Thank God we survived. But the individual did not change his or her identity. Even after several generations? Even after several generations, you found groups who were still uh, calling themselves by the name of the Greek island they came from 200 years earlier. It was not a simple thing to change your cultural identity. Uh, So the notion of naturalization of citizenship was uh, an abstraction they didn't know about. But in the Greek uh, culture, and after Alexandrian conquest, this was very much an idea. You have new cities that are coming into being, that are created, new colonists. Some are Macedonian, some are Jews, and you have indigenous peoples. Well, the indigenous peoples are, of course, going to be treated shabbily. They're always the lowest rung of society. That's the nature of the world. You you conquer a territory, and the, the aboriginals don't do too well. But the conquerors are often going to bring with them people who are not of their religious or ethnic or national persuasion. So the Greeks don't just bring Greeks, they also bring Jews. What's the status of these Jews? Are they going to have citizenship rights in the new territories? So uh, the Jews, of course, say, yes, we we, we should be on par with the Greeks. What do the Greeks say? No. No, you're not us. Well, what ends up happening? This battle is fought for 300 years and never fully resolved. When we get to the, the late Second Temple period, this question will still come up in the days of Philo, and, and under, the, under the Roman leadership of Caligula, whose decision would be an arbitrary one, because he was nuts. Okay? Uh, so for over 300 years, this question is ongoing. Um, so there was no program of acculturation for conquered people? Not really. Uh, it was more a, a program of subjugation and exploitation. And linguistically, neither, or is that linguistically just things happen just because on the street things happen mm-hmm. without government inten- uh, intending to, to accomplish anything. Um, and so, plenty of uh, low class people, whether whether uh, indi- indi- indigenous Egyptians or Jews, whoever spoke Greek as opposed to Hebrew or some uh, Egyptian dialect, mm-hmm. but that's just because you needed to get along. Um, now the. Um, the Greeks settled the Jews in, in Libya and Cyprus as well as Egypt, and the Jews were used by the government as settlers who would keep down the natives. 
in effect, the Jews were privileged aliens. They were a, st- a step above the, uh, the locals, but a step below the conquering Macedonians. Ultimately, that status made them hated by both sides. Because when you're in the middle, the, the people on top hate your guts, and the people on the bottom hate your guts. So anti-Semitism will become a real scourge in Egypt, more so than in any other province. Okay. According to the tradition uh, handed, by, handed down by the Alexandrian Jews, the Greek translation of the Torah happened under Ptolemy II Philadelphus, who ruled from uh, 285 to 241, roughly. He had a, a very long reign and was considered a glorious monarch. Uh, Pseudo-Aristius, which is written in the late 2nd century BCE, claimed that Ptolemy sent a message to the high priest to supply a translation for the royal library. And the high priest sent them six uh, uh, scribes for every one of the twelve tribes, so 72 total, and they worked for 72 days, and upon completing the manuscript, they read it before the king and the Jewish community, and it was approved by them. So that's the story that appears in Pseudo-Aristius. Um, Philo records that there was an annual holiday celebrating the day of the completion of this translation. The rabbis and the, and the church fathers later adopted this version of the 72, uh, and that's why it's known as the Targum Shivim, the translation of the 70, or LXX. Um, the original translation was only of the Torah, not of the Tanakh as a whole. The Nevi'im and Ketuvim were not translated. So is there a Targum Shivim on the Nach? Yes, there is. But it was written at a later time and of less reliable character. It was speculated that the reason for the translation is not because the, the, the monarch wanted it for his royal library, but rather that Jews who were assimilating an Egyptian society were unable to understand the Torah in the original and needed a translation to accompany the Hebrew Torah reading. But what's wrong with that explanation? Huh? No. What's problematic? Forget about the government. Let's assume for the moment that that's not what really happened. Let's assume that this theory is correct. That the, that the Jews assimilating... The Jews are assimilating and they don't understand the Hebrew Torah reading, so they need a translation to accompany the Hebrew Torah reading. Huh? Spoke Aramaic. Well, no. If they're in Egypt, they're they're not going to be speaking Aramaic so much anymore. They're going to be speaking Greek. What's the What's the problem? No, no, no. There is no Torah reading. It's a trick question because there, it, it presupposes that there's a Torah reading. What Torah reading? Who Torah reading? Does it say in the Torah you have to read the Torah? Okay. So the rabbinic tradition tells us that the public reading of the Torah, the Kriyata Torah B'Tzibur, on Shabbos, is the enactment of Moshe Rabbeinu. But that's very much a historical. Then other theory says it was done by Ezra. Didn't we say that two weeks ago? Okay. We also said that Ezra was responsible for the Monday, Thursday, and Shabbos afternoon. Let's assume for the moment that that snippet of rabbinic literature has a kernel of historical truth. That maybe he did. I'm not saying for sure I know that it's true. I'm saying that maybe it's true. Even if it is, that's in the pious congregations of Eretz Yisrael, of, of Jerusalem, w- which is under the authority of Mosaic law. And Ezra was a, was, a, was a powerful figure who could impose things on people. Is it necessarily true that they followed the Kriya Torah but Sibor on Monday, Thursday, Shabbos, Yantav, like we have in the diaspora congregations of Egypt? 
I'm not even sure it happened in Israel, let alone in the diaspora. The critical scholars all say that public reading of the Torah didn't start until roughly around the first century before the Common Era, well after the, the, the Targum Shivim. So the, the theory that it's because the Jews of, of Egypt were assimilated and didn't understand the Hebrew reading of the Torah, there was no public re- Hebrew reading of the Torah. Okay, so it's wrong. So why did they need it? Ah, let's find out the answer. We're gonna we're gonna see what the what what the, the probably the real answer is. Wasn't there learning of the Torah? I would imagine there was some, but among those it had who to be done, if they were doing it also for the proletariat, they had no. But who's to say they were doing it for the proletariat? Maybe it was only for the scholarly elite who could read Hebrew in, in private setting, not in a public setting. And there was no public setting for anything. The the origins of the synagogue are shrouded in mystery. They still are. Well, let's just let's just think yeah. of this. I would think that literacy would be almost nil among the Correct. Criteria. Correct. And then it would be an elitist group that would be the people who learn the Torah. Right. And maybe even this elitist group did not want them to be able to read because I, I seem to have come across that in the Christian in the Christian. Um, Keep, keep the masses ignorant of the Bible. Right, and you would yeah. never see, for example, a Bible, let's say, in a in a Christian uh, religious bookstore because they did not want people to be able to read it. You go to the cathedral. All right, so that w- that that was true in the first sem- first temple times, where the Kohanic class kept a monopoly on religious knowledge. The purpose, the agenda of Ezra. Uh, and the sort of the, the phantom Anshe Knesset Hagadola is to make the Torah more readily available to all peoples in Eretz Israel, and that was accomplished eventually after the year of uh, after second uh, century BCE when Ben Sira begins to encourage public study of Torah and and and, and, and education of children. So there's more widespread literacy and, and widespread knowledge of, of 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 the Bible. But in the earlier times, you're right, there was limited knowledge of the Bible. Okay, so also. According to Pseudo-Aristius, the translation was not mass-produced for liturgical use. There were only two copies made. How do you like that? So yeah, we make this big to-do about the translation of the Torah into Greek. There were two copies made. One was given to the royal library, and one was given to the chiefs of the Jewish community. So again, it could not be a desire to have widespread literacy and knowledge of Torah, because if that was true, we would have made a thousand copies. They didn't. They made two copies, and only one went to the Jews. So why was it commissioned? That's the question. Answers. The Hellenistic monarchs at that time were commissioning grand histories of the various conquered peoples, including the Egyptian local native history and Babylonian history. So the Torah, as sort of the ancient history of the Jews, fit into that framework. Also, wisdom in the Greek world was typically oral and not written. Okay, they memorized a lot of poetry. They didn't write things down so much. But law codes were the exception. Law codes like the Torah were translated and written in the vernacular. And so, if Mosaic law is going to be the real law of the land in parts of the Ptolemaic Empire, namely the province of Judea, then the government has to know what that law is. They, sim- they can't simply rely upon the say-so of the ecclesiastical authorities in the temple in Jerusalem that this is what our law says. No, they need an official version that they, the Greeks, can understand and thus can implement in, w- in one of their territories. It's a very important idea. Um, now, what the um, was the Septuagint accurate? That's the question. There are many many differences between it and the Torah, the, the Masoretic text that we have of the Torah, especially Exodus chapters thirty-five to forty, which is about the uh, the, 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 the Mishkan. 
So some speculated that it was translated from a Samaritan Torah. Not, not a, a Jewish Torah, but a Samaritan Torah. And we know there are many differences between the Samaritan Torah and our Torah. Or that it was translated not from the, the Hebrew original, but from an, from an Aramaic translation. So it's a translation of a translation. That's a theory. I, don't, I, I doubt that's really what happened. You can check that out, Ken. You would, you, there would be copies of, let's say, Samaritan Torah. So there, there are a lot of parallels between the, the Septuagint, the original version, and the Samaritan Torah, where they depart from the Masoretic Torah, which is why this theory exists. It's, it's not just made up out of hot air. It's, it, there, there's concrete evidence that there are similarities. Okay. <coughs> I'm going to get to that. I'm going to get to that. On the 8th of Tavis, yeah. So... Or, some even speculated that our Hebrew version today was dependent upon the Greek version. Not that the Greek version was a translation of the Hebrew, but that the Hebrew was a translation of the Greek. That's bizarre. That's a, that's a very bizarre theory. But the, the, schol- the better scholars tend to reject that. So, the, the real reason why there were errors is simply because the translators were ignorant of either, both, either, either Hebrew or Greek or both. Uh, remember, the translation had to be done by Jewish scholars. It wasn't done by Goyim. Did Jews have perfect knowledge of Greek? They had a working knowledge of Greek. And they're new to that civilization. So in their best efforts to produce a Greek Bible, they come up short in a lot of areas. But were they necessarily the biggest Chachamim? So if you say that the Kohen Gadol sent 72 people from Eretz Yisrael to, uh, to Alexandria, so he would have sent the best of the best, the cream of the crop. But if that story is Baba Misa, and in fact it's just a production of Greek Jews, of Alexandrian Jews, who were living in, 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 in Mitzrayim and had limited connection to Eretz Israel, were they necessarily the Gedoyle Hador? No, they could have been uh, third grade Rebbe's. Not to disparage third grade Rebbe's, but they're not the, 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 the great poskim. So that's why it, there are flaws. Their Hebrew wasn't necessarily so great, and their Greek certainly wasn't great. Okay, so now we get to something that appears in the Gemara about how there were intentional mistranslations, sometimes to. Okay, okay, okay. So. You're right. So, you're right, and the Gemara addresses that point that there are there are many many spots where the 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 mistranslation is purposeful. Okay. Oh, okay, so that's, that's, that's a good question. Let me just spend a minute on that. When, when a book is published, what was this question? The, the question is, if there are only two copies made, how did it survive? How was it used? Okay, so... In, in, in antiquity, one of the ways of publishing a book was by having um, a massive number of copies disseminated all over the place. The problem with that, of course, was who is to know... Which is the authoritative copy? And if you want to make corrections, who do you look, which one do you look at as you know, being definitely right and the others as being off? Whereas the other way of publishing something is having one manuscript, depositing it in some kind of safe place, in a royal archive or a temple archive, and then when you have uh, co- other copies that are floating around, when you want to correct it, you want to verify the accuracy, you go to the one that's in the archive. Codex. So, exactly. What was the most important, Jewishly speaking, the most important book that falls into that category? 
The Torah. <laughs> the, where was the Torah? The Torah was in the Beis Hamikdash, and there were three copies. One of them was the copy of Ezra, according to rabbinic literature. And when you wanted to know if your copy of Torah was accurate, you went to the, to the three copies that were in the temple, and you checked them. And if two out of the, two out of the three said that you were, you were right, then you were right. Now, by the way, if it says two out of three says you were right, it means that there were problems problems even within the three copies in the temple. So our you know the the the. Uh, the very fundamentalist orthodox point of view that we have an exact uh, uh, copy of Torah, text of Torah today is a bit overboard because the, 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 the rabbinic literature admits that there were discrepancies in, in the impressive copies of Torah, let alone the, the sort of the, the, the amateurish copies of Torah that were floating around Eretz Israel, which Rabbi Meir railed against and said, don't use them, don't use them, they're, they're inaccurate. Okay, so... With the Septuagint, the same thing happened. Royal Archive, if you want to check it, go to the Royal Archive. Now, what was it used for? So it was used for people to study the Torah who didn't understand Hebrew. And yes, more copies eventually circulated. Many more copies eventually circulated. And the scholars of Alexandrian Jewry likely used the Targum Shivim rather than a Hebrew original when doing their learning including the, the, the sophisticated philosophers. Yeshomrim, there are those who will say that Philo couldn't read Hebrew. Wow. I don't know it to be true for sure, but there are certain Philo scholars who, tell, who will say that he, he couldn't read Hebrew. What did he write? He wrote in Greek, and that he, and that he read the, the Tagmashivim. There was not a single book that he wrote that was in Hebrew. No. Hebrew, so I find it hard to believe that he didn't, uh, he didn't have some kind of basic <laughs> grasp of Hebrew, but maybe he couldn't read Torah in the original. What about what about Josephus? Same no, Josephus was a, was an Eretz Israel Jew who was a scholar. He, of course, he knew Hebrew. I mean, he wrote in, 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 he, wrote in, in he wrote in Aramaic and he wrote in Greek, uh, but his Aramaic was better than his Greek because he was a, he was not a native uh, Greek speaker. He just adopted uh, you know uh, the, the the Latin Flavian uh, pretenses later in life, but he was certainly knew Hebrew. Okay. I I don't know. And since, it, since there's no halacha governing it, I couldn't tell you what it should have been written on. But the Sefer Torah, I can tell you what, 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 what the rules are. What did they write on? Stone? No, not stone. No, uh, skins. Skins, like a, mostly like, like a Torah. Okay. We're confident that we're, we have the Masoretic text that in the 9th century was established as being the accurate text. And we also said it was three, three, and that all three were identical. Right, yeah. So, how do we know that of the three, though? We, we do our best. Listen, in the, in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, uh, what's it? Mordechai Breuer tried to have an exact, uh, a, a perfect uh, edition of the Tanakh. On what basis? On the on the Kitter Aram Sova, the Aleppo Codex. The problem is half of the Codex went missing. So what do you do? You take some guesswork. I mean, there, there's there's a, there's a degree of guesswork involved, more so with the Nevi'im and Tuvim than with the Torah, because with the Torah we have full copies that go back a long time. Uh, but even with Torah, listen, there there are places where Rashi's uh, Rashi, you know, the the uh, the prescript on Rashi's comments differs from what we have in our in our our Torahs. Uh, you know, about eleven places. So uh, here and there is there's a letter or something. Uh, where we don't know exactly. Okay. Um, <coughs> take a look in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Yeah. You will see the book of uh, Isaiah. Right. Yeah. That, I know, That's the total. Uh, it's from Yeshayahu. So I yeah. stood there in the museum and read the whole thing. Uh-huh. The lettering that we're talking about 2,000 years ago. Yeah. It, the text is almost 
The text is almost the same as today, except for a few letters. Few letters, yeah. Uh-huh. Amazing resemblance. Well, we did a good job of preserving it. Now, um, the. The, the Septuagint that we have today is very similar to the Samaritan Torah, to the Book of Jubilees, to the, book, to the books found at the Qumran Library, and to the Vulgate. And sometimes differs from the, the accepted Torah that we have in the rabbinic tradition. Why that should be the case? It's hard to know. Because when were the changes made? In other words, is the, is the, is the Greek translation of the Torah that we're looking at the original Greek translation, commissioned by Tommy Philadelphus a long time ago? Or was it tinkered with to fit the readings, the exegetical readings of certain groups within Judaism, whether Judeo-Christians or the Dead Sea sect or, or Alexandrian Jewry, we really don't know. It's almost impossible to know where these changes creep in. Are they original or are they de- uh, sort of derivative? Okay. Um, let's jump a little bit. Uh, the the Targum Shivim was, was a hyper-literal translation. They made the Greek Torah into a very un-Greek book. Every, it was word for word, literal translation. Of course, that destroys figures of speech and euphemisms and expressions that should not be translated literally. So the end result is a, a shoddy work. I mean, it's not, it's not an impressive work. There were, there were also outright mistakes. So, for example, Leviticus chapter 18, verse 21. What does that mean? Don't give over your sons to the, in the worship of Molech. So they translated Molech as Archon, A-R-C-H-O-N, which is like a king, a, 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 politi- a, 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 a political official, a human, a human being. Not Molech as in a deity, a fire deity. So they thought Molech was actually Melech. But they're, incur- they're, they're wrong. I mean, it's, it's, it's just a very poor, poor scholarship. But that's, that's what we have here. Other things were taken out. Indelicacies were taken out. So instead of circumcise the foreskin of your heart, which is umaltem et orlat levavchem, instead it says to prune the obstinacy of your heart. That foreskin was a little bit too uh, grotesque for their taste. Now, the, the, the Targum Shivim also contemporized many matters, especially those related to Egyptian and Egyptian place names. So in the book of, of, of Exodus, you have... Um, landmarks that were relevant in biblical times, that they would have known where it was, what it was, but in the, in the in Tagum Shivim, the, the newer name of that place, the, you know, the, uh, the, the village that's built several layers of civilization above the ancient village is mentioned by its place name instead. But can't you say that applies to the Hebrew also? That in order to, let's say be able to hone in on a place right. that it wasn't the name of the place when Avraham lived there. The ulam lose shema We just had this, this parsha, yeah. We're losing Beit El. So, all right, so the Torah will occasionally alert us to the fact that the place name has changed over time. Uh, or, or, yeah. He, all right, right, right. Yeah, Avraham Baritz Kanan. So, <coughs> we have those examples in Torah as well, but the Targum Shivim doesn't bother giving us the, both names. It just gives one name, the newer one. So you, so you wouldn't know when you're reading it that there's a change. You're just reading the text as it is. Okay. Um, they referred to the Shivim Zekenim in the book of Bamidbar as the Jerusia. Why? Because in the third century before the Common Era, 
what was the Senate of Eretz Yisrael? The Jerusia, which is a Greek word. But they, they imposed that back onto the Bible. That the Shirim Zikinim, the story of Eldad and Meidad, are known by the name that, that existed in their time. Um, another example of contemporizing things. The present reality of Jerusalem. All sacrifices have salt. Al kol korbancha takriv melach. So according to the Septuagint, even the showbread had salt. Even though according to the Torah, it doesn't. Another example, the shulchan, the table that has the showbread, according to the Torah, was gilded. It was wood surrounded by gold. But in the Beit HaMikdash, what was it? Pure gold. So in the, in the, in the Greek translation of Torah, what does it say? Pure gold. As it was in its own time. Um, a couple of other interesting notes. Mimacharat HaShabbat. Oh, that's a tough one. We've spent a lot of time on Macharat HaShabbat. What does it mean? The morrow of the Sabbath, the first day of Passover. What is, so the Pharisees, of course, as we have today, say Macharat HaShabbat means the day after the first day of Pesach, or the second day of Pesach, the 16th of Nisan. You bring the Omer, and you start counting the 49 days to the next holiday of Shavuot. The, the Sadducees said that the Macharat HaShabbat means the morrow of uh, the uh, of the the Shabbat of the of during the week of Pesach. So Sunday after the Saturday of Pesach, the Book of Jubilee says it's the Sunday after the Saturday after Pesach, which is even further into the future. And so you have an even later Shavuot. So there are three theories about Macharat HaShabbat. What does the Targum Shivim say? It adopts the, the viewpoint of the Pharisees. So some who try to defend the integrity of, the, uh, of, of Pharisaic interpretations of Torah as sort of rabbinic orthodoxy and saying that's the, the true understanding, look, look to the Targum Shiva and say, ah, see, even these sectarian Jews who lived in Alexandria knew the rabbis were right. Uh, it's, a, it's a fairly good proof. Um, now, the, the word Torah appears in the Torah many times. For example, when? Vizot HaTorah Shesam or... Uh, the word Torah many times. What, what does the word Torah mean? Teaching? Okay, so, I don't know what the word Torah means, but I'll tell you what the Targum Shivim said it meant. They said it means nomos, or law. And it's an imprecise uh, uh, terminology, but there isn't much of a better choice. Hora, to instruct. So, this is the origin of the English language usage, mostly in Christian literature, but in, in Jewish literature as well, I think even in the Hertz Chumash, of referring to the Torah as the law, capital L. You ever see that? You'll find the, the Pentateuch, the law. So the law is on the basis of this. Torah equals nomos equals law. All right, another example of... Uh, terminology, the Brit, which means covenant, in the Greek was diatiki, which means a pledge or a promise, which when, in, when it was uh, translated into Latin in the Vulgate became testamentum or testament. So the origins of the terms New and Old Testament is because the word Brit in the original Hebrew was translated in a certain fashion into the, into the Greek and then subsequently into the Latin. Okay. But the word testament in itself comes from like yeah. as far as the word testify so it just it seems to make sense 
Well, it, it, it's a, it's a bit of a stretch, though. It's it, because Brit means means you know covenant. It doesn't mean testifying about a covenant. It's a related it's a related concept, but it's not a direct uh, or a really good translation. Okay. Now, there was a big war. Uh, before we go in, uh, go to the more political issues, let's get back to the to the, to the translation of Torah and why why it was seen as a terrible thing. Um, in the in the Talmud, we find that the rabbis accepted the translation of the, the Torah into Greek as a sort of a necessity because the the Gentile authorities were demanding it. So you have to do it. Because it's an emergency measure, you don't want to get into trouble with the with the Talmud Hamelach, and precisely because you don't want to get into trouble with him, you don't want to offend him. And so, when his wife's name is the same name as a trafe animal, you give that trafe animal a different name. Okay, that the Arnevit is not a kosher animal; it was his wife, so give give it a different name. Uh, or, what day did God finish working? Vayachal Elokim by Yom Ha Shvi'i. It says in the Torah, in Genesis chapter two, verse two, that God finished His creation on the seventh day. Which means He may have worked on the seventh. Day. So did He work on the seventh day? That opens up uh, a pitchon peh, an opportunity for critics of the Torah to say, "Ha, ah, why do you have to rest on the Sabbath? Even God worked on the seventh day." Now, what's the what's the tr- the traditional interpretation of that? So either chutasara that God is able to calculate the, the the clock exactly and work until the split second before sundown, as opposed to we uh, 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 people of flesh and blood who we are, our calculations are not so precise and therefore we have to light Shabbos candles eighteen minutes early. But God can go down to the to the wire. That's one interpretation. So it looked like it was Yom Hashvi'i, or or He created rest, He created minucha rest. So those are you know rabbinic ways of, of, of saving the, the Pasuk from being really problematic. Is that the whole business with the Adventists? Huh? Is that the whole business with the Eighth-day Adventists? Eight, I, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Ask Ben Carson. Only All right. So, but in order to avoid this problem altogether, what did the Targum Shivim do? It said, They just changed the word. Okay? So, the rabbinic literature says that the 72 were put into different rooms and each one worked independently and in the end they came up with all the same thing. And it was a great miracle because if they had come up with different things then Tommy would have known that they were a bunch of deceivers and he would have killed them all. So, big miracle. Nes Gadol. Of course, this story is borrowed from the Pseudo-Aristius. It's not in, you know, indigenous to rabbinic literature. It's, it's a borrowed tale. But it stuck, and, we, and, and, the, and the text became known by that name of Targum Shivim, of the translation of the 70. But elsewhere in rabbinic literature, we find that the day of the translation was Yom Kasheli Yisrael Kiyom Shenasubo HaEgel, which means what? It was a horrible day, as bad as the day of the golden calf. So only in one other place in all of rabbinic literature does it say something was so bad it was like the day of the golden calf. Do you know what, that, what day that was? Golden calf day. No, 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 no. That wasn't so bad. So, <laughs> no, the day of the golden cat, the day that 
the house of Shammai defeated the house of Hillel in the academy. The 18 Gezerot, uh, the Yudachet Gezerot, and some say even people, the blood was flowing in the, in, in the base medrash because the people got killed. That the Nazcher of Bakarka, they put a sword in the ground and says, if you try to walk out, we'll kill you. It was a horrible day. It's not surprising that that the Safrut Chazal, the literature of the rabbis, would refer to the day of the victory of the Beit Shammai as a bad day because history is written by the winners. And who won? Beit Hillel ultimately wins. So the, tempor- the temporary victory of Beit Shammai is seen as a, as, a, as a temporary setback, but a really horrible one at that. Okay. Is it an apt comparison? I don't know. Probably not. But you know, Jews. What, but what about, what about the, 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 the translation of Torah? So why was it regarded as so terrible? answer is like this. In the early days after the translation, the Jews of Eretz Yisrael had very little to do with that translation. It was basically a product of Egypt and remained in Egypt. But eventually, as Greek culture spreads and infiltrates much of Jewish society, so Jews who don't understand Hebrew need a translation. Eventually, they'll be supplied with several Aramaic translations, like that of Onkelos and later the Yontan Menuzil, which is falsely attributed to him. Um, but you'll need a Greek translation for those for whom Greek is their main language and not Aramaic. And the, the translation of Akila Sager, uh, Akila the proselyte, who, who was a disciple of Rabbi Akiva, will serve that purpose in Eretz Yisrael. And it was authorized by the rabbis as opposed to the Targum Shivim, which probably wasn't authorized by any rabbis. There were no rabbis back then. Well, what went wrong with the, with the Targum Shivim? The church began to use it. The, the uh, Old Testament, which is the, you know, our Bible, but in, 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 the, in, the, in the Christian uh, recension of it, the Old Testament is the Vulgate. The Vulgate is in Latin. The Vulgate was translated from the Greek, from the Targum Shivim. Now, yes, Jerome, who wrote the Vulgate, did learn Hebrew. He learned it from Jews. He, he, he went to Eretz Yisrael in the 4th century and studied at the feet of, of, of great Hebraic scholars for a long time. And he was, he was competent in Hebrew. But the Latin is a translation of the Greek. The Greek product basically was in the domain of Christians for several hundred years. And they reinterpreted many, many passages and, 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 and uh, played around with the text so as to make... Um, Christian theology seem more consistent with the ancient books of the Torah. So because the text was corrupted in favor of our religious adversaries, the rabbis looked down upon it as treif. And so it was added to the list of things that are bad. And uh, I gave a lecture a couple of years ago, we did the holidays, about the fast of the ninth of, of, of Tevet. The famous or infamous the fast of the ninth of Tevet. What's the fast of the ninth of Tevet? So everyone knows tenth of Tevet is the the Matzor on Yerushalayim, and the eighth of Tevet um, is the translation of Torah into uh, in, in, into Greek. And the ninth of Tevet, what was it? So some said it was the it was the yard site of Ezra, but others say it was the yard site of of Shimon Kalfon, Simon Kalfus. Who was he? Was he some sort of uh, ra- uh, double agent who worked for the rabbis and, uh, against the church? A whole long story. Schneer Zalman Lyman wrote a very important article about it. I gave a lecture about it here a couple of years back. Uh, it's uh, it's, it's a, 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 a fascinating tale. But the point is that we, 
at least in, in, in the later rabbinic writings, were fasting over the existence of the Greek translation. That never would have happened shortly after the translation was, was first produced. It was a positive day. It was a great day for, for the Jews of Egypt because now they were able to read the Bible in a language they understood. And as Philo says, they celebrated it annually. And Philo's writing in the year 40 of the Common Era, 300 years roughly after this translation was done. So for centuries, it was a kosher item. It was not treif, it was not evil, it was not worthy of fasting over. It was good. It served a useful purpose. What did I compare it to in, in, in uh, prior lectures? What translation of Torah did I compare this to? No, no, Moses Mendelssohn's Biur. Why? Because Moses Mendelssohn's Biur, the purpose of it, like the supposed purpose of the Septuagint, was to give people who don't understand Hebrew an opportunity to study the Bible in a language they do understand, in the vernacular. And so for the, for the acculturated Jews of Germany, of Berlin in the 1780s, uh, they could read the Hebrew font, the Hebrew characters, but they didn't understand Hebrew. So having German language, but Hebrew font, served that useful purpose. Of course, the traditionalists in the East regard this as a, as a heretical step, no good, bad idea, and let's, let's put it in Cherem and burn it. Same thing happened with the Targum Shivim. The rabbis of Eretz Yisrael, a few hundred years later, say this was a bad idea, and we don't care about what happened, that it was good in its time. Right now, it's suspect in our eyes, and we'll fast over its existence. So attitudes change because of the religious usage of, of the book by other denominations. But in all reality, what it is, is if it didn't happen then, it would have happened some other time. Correct. If you had it's, 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 it's inevitable that the Bible is going to be translated into a language that people, want to understand, that people can understand and want to read. Okay, so that's a separate matter. Uh, should the Gentiles have access to our knowledge? Okay. Hallelujah. So in in the modern era, in the modern era, with mass communication and with the internet, or even before the internet, you can't you can't hold back any information. Bottom line is anybody can find out anything. <coughs> which is why Rav Moshe allowed Rabbi Tites to have a Gemara Shir on the radio. Because even though Goyim might be listening to their Gemara Shir and you can't teach Gemara to Goyim, it doesn't matter because they could, get, they could read the Sancino anyway and uh, the gig is up. So that's true now. But 2,000 years ago, concealing Jewish wisdom was a real possibility. And so from the standpoint of Mishpatim Bagidaum, that we're not supposed to reveal our our sacred knowledge to the outside world, maybe this was a bad idea. All right? That's a reason to frown upon the translation. Ultimately, the, 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 uh, the rabbis, Chazal, came up with a pshara, a compromise. And they made a chiluk, the distinction between the Torah Shebechtav and Torah Shebaal That the Torah Shebechtav is written down, and whatever is written down, you're not going to be able to hide. You can't hide it from anybody. Not a Jew, not a heathen. And they're going to get access to it somehow, some way. But the oral Torah should remain oral precisely for this reason. That only the initiated, the learned Jews, should have access to that information. Because if we, give, if we lose the, our monopoly over the oral Torah, then what makes us special? Then anybody could have our, the full gamut of God's wisdom, divine wisdom. So that's, a, that's, that's 
damned if you do, damned if you don't, because you had to eventually put it in. Ah, okay, so Esla Soshim Refer to Resecha, in the days of Rebbe, we're having a codified version of the Mishnah, in the days of Ravino and Ravashi, a codified version of the Talmud. Uh, it's going to be written down. So, we needed it. And since we need it, that's more important than keeping, uh, playing keep away from the Goyim. You know, the, the, the widespread Jewish knowledge of our own religious heritage is more important than keeping the monopoly. That's the, that's, that's the bottom line. Okay. In the last couple of minutes, let's just uh, do some political history before we, uh, we stop. So there was a big war between Antiochus III and Tommy IV in two, between 221 and, one sev- and 217. Syria encroached upon Egypt, uh, but unsuccessfully. By the war's end, Judea was back under Egyptian control. Ptolemy IV, the last really powerful of the Egyptian monarchs, died in 204 and left behind Ptolemy V, who was a child. And whenever you have a child king, what does the other side try to do? Attack! Attack! Because what's a child king going to do? He's going to be a wimp. Or he's going to be in the hands of, of regents and executors who are uh, just going to be looking to steal his money. Uh, a, a weak king is a, is a good target. So, Antiochus III and Philip V conspire to take away the Egyptian peripheral possessions. And between 202 and 198, the war of Eretz Israel ends with a, with a Syrian victory. Uh, Antiochus reoccupies Jerusalem in the year 200 after a long and difficult siege. The city was badly damaged, very badly damaged. Antiochus granted a three-year tax exemption for the remaining residents of Jerusalem and anyone who would return quickly because he didn't want to have the population to be just mass exodus. Tribute was reduced by a third. Jews sold into slavery were released. And the rebuilding of the temple was undertaken. Uh, ben Sira, Ecclesiasticus, praises Shimon HaTzadik, Simon II, for being a great Kohen Gadol, the greatest of all the Kohanim uh, Gadolim. Why? Because he was able to successfully accomplish the rebuilding of the temple and much of Jerusalem. What number temple is that then? Is that it's, still considered the second? It's still considered the second, yeah. So, now, Jerusalem favored Syria in the war against Egypt. They favored Syria in the war against Egypt. But why? And the reason why it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fair question to ask is because Egyptian rule had been good for the, for, for the Jewish portions of Eretz Israel for a hundred years. Remember, from 301 to the year 200, basically it was quiet. Sure, there were many wars, I told you, but those wars didn't impact upon the, the areas where Jews lived and didn't have uh, you know, adverse effect on the temple or uh, religious life. I mean, basically... Jews were left alone and prospered, and the population increased dramatically. So why defect and favor the Seleucid kingdom when the Ptolemies were good to you? Uh, and for this, re- uh, f- uh, and to answer this question, next week we'll have to explain Jews are not a monolithic group. There was political division within Eretz Israel Jewry, and people will pick sides depending upon what's in their financial interests. So we're no longer going to be in, in the era, the biblical era, where there, there are sort of these cosmic good guys and cosmic bad guys, and we'll have to try to f- side with the good guys, but rather, everybody's a bad guy. But there's my bad guy and there's your bad guy. And we'll stop here. <laughs>